Hi, welcome to episode 657 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, best known for my TikTok video of me refusing to wear a mask at a retirement home for wounded veterans. People, trying to take away my liberties. Ugh. Today it's Empire Issue 2, published in July 2020 by writers Dan Slott and Al Ewing, an artist, an artist Valerio Shaiti. So we start on the blue area of the moon, which is the best neighborhood on the moon. Well, it's the only neighborhood on the moon. The Avengers and the Fantastic Four have been attacked and defeated by Quo and the Kotati people, who are kind of a plant-based alien race. Thor is upset. He says to the Qua, You fought at my side. You were one of us. And we learn that Qua is the first Avengers baby, or so they say, the son of two Avengers. But I think the Vision and Scarlet Witch's kids uh, might disagree with that. Qua is the son of Mantis and the Swordsman, who neither of them really qualify as Avengers. You know Mantis from the Guardians of the Galaxy and Swordsman as a man with a sword. He goes on to say that he was raised by the Avengers in their image. What the what? He calls he calls Thor Uncle Thor. Wait, this is one crazy retcon. Where has he been hiding out? With Gwen Stacy's children? He saw how the scrolls and the Kree mistreated his people and now he wants revenge. You could even say he wants to avenge them. Oddly enough, the Avengers aren't really enthusiastic about avenging things. The Swordsman is also on his son's side and announcing that the Avengers have done a lot of good work, so he'll let them live. Oh great, I'm sure they were pissing in their pants over the Swordsman. The Swordsman turns and disappears through a teleportation portal. So Qua, Q-U-O-I, I have no idea how to say Qua. He's still there, talking to all the Avengers wrapped up by the limbs of his trees. He's telling them about various plans to secretly attack the Skrulls and Kree and to pre prevent a Kree-Skrull alliance, the details of which are unimportant to me. Suffice to say, his story ends with the Kree and Skrull making an alliance with the Hulkling as their emperor. Qua hears something coming. He looks and he sees Thor's hammer coming in fast, landing in Thor's hand. Thor smashes himself and the Avengers free from the tree. I was kind of hoping they would stay there the entire miniseries. Qua wisely teleports away and Iron Man feels bad that he let him get away. Next, the crazy killer plants start moving in around them. Down on Earth, Black Panther and the other Avengers announce that the Kotati have arrived on Earth and the first place they attack, the New York Public Library just getting their revenge for some exorbitant late book fees. So Thor teleports himself and Captain America and Iron Man to Earth, while Captain Marvel flies into space to join the Skrull Kree fleet, and the Fantastic Four, who we haven't seen yet, halfway into this issue. This Kree guy named Captain Glory, terrible name. I bet he has a secret headquarters called the Glory Hole. So anyway, he flies in for a chat with Captain Marvel. Which is, that's a great name, which is why everyone wants to use it. Captain Glory admits that he has done a lot of terrible things in the service of the Kree, and he seems to want to put that aside and work with Captain Marvel to help the Kree and the Skrull fight the Kotati. Inside the Skrull ship, 
we see the Scrolls, the Hulkling, and the Fantastic Four fighting off these Kotati killer roots. Yes, the epic crossover of 2020, the Marvel heroes fighting roots and tree limbs. The Beyonder be like, and you make fun of Secret Wars too. The Hulkling uses some magic sword to cut the tangled limbs off the thing. He explains that the sword can recognize a friend from a foe, which is why it didn't cut Ben in half when he was hacking at those limbs. Mr. Fantastic immediately starts thinking about the sword and how he can make a bigger weapon out of it. Next, a group of heroes is under an invisible woman force field, including Captain Marvel and the Hulkling. Carol Danvers, by the way, totally going to be the Hulkling's mother in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Definitely. So, Teddy says to her, Ready? And she is. And he stabs her with his magic sword. She's in pain, but there seems to be a bunch of energy coming out of her, and it's uh, exploding all over the place. And it seems like uh, Carol killed all the Kotati on the ship from that explosion of the sword going into her body. So now they can get on, get along with their true mission, running Kor's beer to Atlanta or something else. I don't know what they're doing. They tell Carol that she died, but they restarted her heart with this big hammer. Turns out this is Ronan the Accuser's hammer. Oh, Ronan the Accuser. He loves to accuse people. He must be very busy on Twitter. Oh, I just checked. He has one follower and his tweets are protected. Hey, this is the modern way to make accusations, Ronan. How can you be an accuser if you're not on Twitter? One of the Kree points out that Carol is part Kree, but she's only served Earth in the past. Maybe she can give Kree a try for a while and hands her Ronan's hammer. Carol takes it and says, Against the Kotati, I say we need all the power we can get. The Kree lady says Carol could bring glory to Hala and to Earth should it survive the coming of the Pyre. P-Y-R-E. Teddy asks what the Pyre is, and the Super Scroll says that the Pyre is the death of a world at your hands, which he says to Teddy, who's like, what? Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast episode 157, part two. Today it's Empire number three, published in July 2020. Written by Al Ewing and Dan Slott with art by Valerio Shadai. The issue starts with a journal entry from Reed Richards, basically fill, filling us in on where we are. The Kree Scroll forces are down on Earth fighting the Kotati. Hulkling, the figurehead leader of the Kree Scroll forces, has issued rules of combat, which his forces are mostly ignoring. Next, we go to Avengers Ma Mountain. Avengers Mountain? The Avengers have a mountain headquarters now. I hope it's not in Detroit. Reed is there in Tony Stark's huge lab working on a solution to the Katati plant control powers. Tony starts to give out the password to his holographic work boards, but Reed already knows it. He says he figured it out that the letters in the password came from the first line of the third song on Tony's worst. Oh, come on. That is so dumb. This is like a stupid person's idea of what a smart person is like. It doesn't matter how smart you are. You're not just going to automatically assume that someone's computer password is the letters from the, from the third song on someone's music playlist, especially since this comes from an obscure song called Good Technology from an English rock band called Red Guitars, a short-lived band in the early 80s. 
What are the chances that both Tony and Reed know this song? Next, Tony starts having a hissy fit, feeling stupid for having trusted the Kotati. Out of curiosity, I googled the Kotati to see how long they've been around. I never heard of them. Turns out they first appeared in Avengers issue 133 in 1975. Sounds like they were obscure characters brought back for this crossover event. Uh, probably better off if left back in 1975. In Wakanda, Ben is there with a wasp, Ghost Rider, and a bunch of Wakandans as the Katati pierce the force field around Wakanda, and a big battle ensues. We do get one of Ben's It's Clobberin' Times. Just outside Wakanda, we see the Kwa, we see Kwa and his men talking about the Death Blossom they planted on the moon. Yeah, the Death Blossom. Whoa! Kwa says that the Black Panther must know what they've come for. And at that very moment, Black Panther is talking about what the Kotati have come for. The Great Vibranium Mound. I don't know who this Vibranium chick is, but that's not a nice way to talk. Oh, Vibranium is... But in this case, they don't want the Vibranium itself, but the oh-so-yummy Vibranium-enriched soil. Wait, is Vibranium radioactive? Black Panther figures they plan to plant one of their death blossoms in the ground there, in the Vibranium-enriched soil. And so the real plot of Empire is revealed. The heroes of Earth must stop an alien race from planting a flower. So Black Panther's there with She-Hulk and the Invisible Woman, and another superhero shows up and gets one of those big reveals. It's like, ooh, it's, it's Mantis. This entire page is like Mantis is in the shadows, taking off her helmet, and then revealing herself like Mantis is some big deal or something. She does mention that she plans to save her son. I have no idea who her son is. I think it's that Kwa guy. Sue points out that Kwa is responsible for killing thousands of people. Maybe millions. Mantis asks if Sue would do the same thing for her son. And of course, Sue can't argue this point. She would, she would, of course she would do the same thing for Franklin. And really, we all know that one day Franklin will kill millions of people. It's just a matter of time. This group is hoping for a diplomatic solution to this problem. Back on the Kree Scroll command ship, they have another idea to get rid of the plant people on the moon, which involves stabbing Captain Marvel with a magic sword, again, this time with more power coursing through the sword. Johnny tells the Hulkling to think about this, since it will probably kill Captain Marvel. Black Panther calls up and asks for the magic sword, and Teddy asks if the Black Panther's plans involve killing an Avenger, and he says no, so Teddy sends him the magic sword. Johnny seems happy with the choice, but Captain Marvel is like, What did you do that for? Teddy says that he thinks Black Panther would use it for a better purpose than they would. One of the Kree leaders tells the Super Scroll to tell Teddy about the Pyre. P-Y-R-E. Pyre. Teddy knows that the Pyre is something that can cause the death of a world. The Super Scroll elaborates to explain it also destroys the planet's sun. It had also been used before on the planet Crawl in the war against the Kotati. It's shocking to the others that the Super Scroll uses this weapon and killed billions of people. Oh well, you know, it is what it is. And this one Kree advisor, a woman named Tan Alf, is advising Teddy that he might have to use that weapon against Earth. Tan Alf 
leaves the bridge, and this Captain Glory guy chases after her and confronts her in the hall. He's like, Tanoth, I know you're a secret. You're a scroll. And she's like, oh, you caught me. He's like, why are you posing as a Kree? And then she turns into a scroll and reveals herself. She is Rakil, Empress of the Scrolls, survivor of Galactus, mother of Anel, the Holy Martyr, and grandmother of Torak Dorak Eight, King of All Space. None of this sounds remotely interesting. And then she adds that soon her grandson will be absolute ruler of the galaxy. And of course I have to go back and Google Dorak 8. And that is Teddy the Hulkling. So yeah, I guess that is an important reveal. Although, instead of posing as a Kree advisor, wouldn't Teddy be more likely to listen to his grandmother? She does look pretty good for a grandmother, by the way. Very firm. Oh, and that's the end of the issue. Time to move on. Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast, episode 657, part 3. Today it's Empire, number 4, from August 2020, by Al Ewing, Dan Slott, and Valerio Shetty. On the bridge of the Kree Scroll flagship, Captain Marvel and Johnny are discussing the situation with the Super Scroll. We learn that if the Kotati take control over the Vibranium Mounds in Wakanda, that will allow them to control plant life throughout the galaxy. That doesn't sound so bad. Teddy, the new emperor of the Kree Scroll Alliance, emerges from his nap. From his nap, he says he's now ready to take over. There are no civilians, only warriors. Sacrifices must be made, etc. He says he's ready to deploy the pyre and destroy the Earth's sun if he has to in order to stop the Kotati. Johnny says, Holy crap! Someone got out of the wrong side of the bed. Captain Marvel surprised and orders a scan to be done of Teddy to make sure he is who he says he is. Captain Glory is appalled by this. But who cares what a guy named Captain Glory thinks? Turns out that really is Teddy and not an, impo an imposter. So Johnny and Captain Marvel start fighting with Captain Glory they aren't inclined to let Earth get sacrificed to save the universe from massive plant domination. You know the phrase, having to clear the swamp will take on a new meaning, that's for sure. Then Super Scroll joins the fight and grabs Johnny from behind. And then Captain Marvel smacks Super Scroll, I think, with Ronan's hammer. Teddy orders this one blue girl to use her magic and she teleports Johnny and Carol away. They teleport to someone's living room which belongs to Billy Kaplan, Wiccan, Teddy's boyfriend. Johnny breaks the bad news to him, that Teddy wants to blow up the sun. Clearly Johnny and Carol were sent by Billy for a reason, not just to deliver bad news. Next, at Avengers Mountain, which looks to be some kind of arctic wasteland, or maybe it's upstate New York, hard to tell. Reed is getting off the communicator on the wall, why are these communication systems on big computers on the size of a wall anymore? Why is that still a thing? Can't they just mostly use their cell phones? Can you get good cell phone service in space? I mean, you're right up there near all the satellites and stuff. Reed tells Tony about Hulkling's plan to blow up the sun. He doesn't even question the truth about what Johnny told him. 
He don't think that Teddy wants to blow up the sun, does he? It's totally a ruse, right? Tony goes back to working on a new suit of armor. Reed is like, Why are you always wasting time working on a new suit of armor? Tony is like, Making new suits of armor, that's my thing. Get off my back. Back in Wakanda, we see that the Kotati have breached the shields and are flooding into Wakanda. While he fights, we learn that Black Panther might have a plan of his own to order that all of the soil in Wakanda be irradiated so that nothing will grow there, not even a death blossom. Well, that's a great way to save the universe, but it might be murder on Wakanda's burgeoning weed industry. Outside of Wakanda near Lake Victoria, Kwa, I hate that name so much. No offense to people named Kwa, but your name is stupid. Kwa is complaining about this attack taking too long. He wonders out loud where the Invisible Woman and the Thing are, and their Hulk. And just then, as if on cue, Invisible Woman appears with a Thing and their Hulk, who is the She-Hulk. And Mantis, Mantis, Quo's mother says that she's just there to talk, not to fight. So Mantis goes ahead and tries to talk to her son, talk to him out of committing genocide. Oh, I remember when my mom had that chat with me. Always an important part of growing up. Why is Qua the leader of the plant people anyway? He's the son of Mantis and Swordsman. He's like a human being or half human being. He is not a plant person. Qua argues that the Kree used a pyre to destroy Kral and they could use the same weapon to wipe out the Kotati. Suddenly out of nowhere, She-Hulk shouts out that the Kree scrolls are planning to use the weapon to destroy Earth and its sun so they better act fast. Sue wonders why She-Hulk is sharing this information, and She-Hulk does something that sends Ben flying through the air. The art isn't clear about what's going on here. The writer has to resort to having Sue explain what just happened. She says that the Hulk used a gamma blast, a radiation shockwave. First of all, why is she referring to the She-Hulk as the Hulk? I know for a fact there's an Immortal Hulk series, so the actual Hulk is still around. So why call She-Hulk the Hulk? That makes no sense. Second, since when did she have a Gamma, gamma Blast power? Hulk and She-Hulk are powerful enough as it is. Why give them some weird new power? Why? She could have just punched Ben in the face. It would have made much more sense and looked way more dynamic on paper. And then, they look over and see some Kotati crawling out of Jennifer's mouth. Of course, some kind of mind control stuff from the Kotati. The Kotati explain that Jennifer is dead and they have just taken over her dead body like a suit of clothes. I don't think that's how clothes work. So she starts fight, fighting the thing while back with the swordsman he's trying to goad his son into action. Mantis is trying to stop him and swordsman is winning this argument. Like really, who would listen to Mantis? Back with Carol and Johnny, they are busy filling uh, Billy in on what happened. Billy can't believe it and he thinks Teddy must be mind controlled or an imposter. Carol and Johnny say there has been scans and stuff done on him and it is the real Teddy. Billy goes on to say, I know Teddy Altman better than anyone else. And that guy up there, that is not the man I married. And we see Teddy and Billy kissing after getting married in Las Vegas. And... I think this is supposed to be a big surprise, shock ending, the first reveal that they're married. By the way, what is it with comic book companies and their gay characters? It's like 
they immediately pair them up and get them married. Gotta get them married. Can't have a single gay character running around. All the straight characters, other than the Fantastic Four, have to remain single so they are relatable to younger readers. But no, not the gay characters. They must not be relatable. Gotta get them married right away. Doesn't matter if they're teenage boys. They gotta be married. What gay teenage boys are getting married? It's such an odd choice. They're not religious. It's not like they're getting married so they can have sex. If any two gay characters should not be married, it's Hulkling and Wiccan. You're taking two gay teenagers who should be relatable to younger readers and turning them into an old married couple. It's ridiculous. Where's Mephisto when you need him? Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast, episode 657, part 4. Today is Empire 5 from August 2020 by Al Ewing, Dan Slott, and Valerio Shitty. When I thought to myself, hey, I'll do Empire on the podcast, I didn't realize it was a weekly series, and I have no idea how long it is. Maybe it's like DC's 52. I'll be doing four of these every month for the next year. Ah, oh, I need to look these, these things up first. So the issue starts in Wiccan's New York apartment. He's telling the story of how he got married to Teddy. The two of them clearly just had sex, and Billy looks very satisfied. And you can imagine as a, as a shapeshifter, Teddy can do all kinds of things. Oh, well, anyway, Teddy suggests they go to Vegas, so Billy teleports them there, and they invite and teleport all their friends from the Young Avengers, and they get married right away. So Billy tells Johnny and Carol, that because he's bonded with Teddy, he can feel that he's alive and can find him anywhere. Is that a problem? I think we know where Teddy is. He's on the bridge of that starship. Or he's taking a nap. So Wiccan teleports the three of them away. You know, teleportation has to be the best power if you're a comic book writer. You can have any character go from place to place, scene to scene, without having to show them in a car or a plane. Like on the TV show 24, Jack Bauer would go from location to location in Los Angeles and people were like, how is he getting around Los Angeles so fast? It was a huge, a huge flaw in the show. You know, they should have made him a teleporter. Back in Africa, Ben is still fighting with the She-Hulk. Sue's trying to stop it with a force field, but She-Hulk keeps punching through him. Is she that strong now? Ben is getting battered and, and bloodied pretty bad by the bloomin' She-Hulk. In Wakanda, Black Panther is battling the Kotati plant people with what appears to be a lightsaber. Well, you know, it is Disney now. Why not? You know, they could have Mickey Mouse pop up and blow one of the Kotati. What are they going to do? Sue themselves? While Black Panther is overwhelmed with Kotati forces, one of them plants something into the ground that opens up a portal. Panther says he's going to use the, sar the Star Sword. Oh, that's the sword he got earlier from the Hulkling. He's going to use the Star Sword to disrupt the portal. But before he can, Black Panther gets disrupted by a sword through the chest by Swordsman. Back on the bridge of the flagship, Billy tele teleports in and the Hulkling tells him that Earthlings are no longer allowed on the bridge. That's how it is, huh, Teddy? Billy says. Teddy replies, It's Doric 8 or just Emperor. I'm not Teddy anymore. And Billy replies, No, you never were. And then the real Teddy appears wearing a mask that inhibits his shape-shifting powers. 
So the imposter grows wings and makes big sharp talons in, on his fist, and he and his people turn to attack the two boys. Next, we see in Wakanda that the fight against the Kotati isn't going very well. They have planted the Death Blossom. The issue ends with Reed and Tony. They realize that the Death Blossom has been planted, and the Kree and Skrulls are going to blow up the sun in nine minutes. Ooh, and that's it. That's all the Empire I got for this episode. So, I cannot believe that this is a big Marvel crossover. The Gotati plant people are not interesting villains. Why, why there's something like 30 crossover books is beyond me. If you like the main series, you'll like four issues of the X-Men fighting plant people. Or you'll like four issues of Captain America fighting plant people. Or four issues of Captain Marvel fly fighting plant people. I'm surprised how little of FF are involved in this series, by the way. It looks like they have top billing with the Avengers, but they seem pretty irrelevant uh, so far. Plus, unlike those other books, they haven't been putting out weekly issues of the FF, thank God. This reminds me so much of the Invasion crossover at DC in the late 80s. There were lots and lots of crossovers, but it was over and done with in a, just a couple of months. It was a alien invasion from a race of aliens that no one cared about before and have not cared about since. And it was like, oh, here's Flash fighting the aliens in his book. Here's Wonder Woman fighting aliens in her book. Captain Adam fighting aliens in his book. And it all adds up to nothing. It's so pointless. Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast episode 657. Part 5. Today is Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 22, from August 2020. You had one job by writer Dan Slott and artists Paco Medina and Sean Izaksi. So the issue begins with a recap of what's been going on so far in Empire, which makes no sense. Why start the issue with a full page of text? with a recap of events, only to spend a couple of story pages also providing a recap. What we see are the FF on the Kree scroll ship fighting plant people. But most of this story doesn't really involve the Fantastic Four, because back on Yancey Street, we have Spider-Man, Wolverine, Franklin, Valeria, Alicia, the Scroll Girl, the Kree Boy, and Johnny's girlfriend, Skye. How do they squeeze Wolverine into this book, by the way? Aren't there like a dozen other X-Men books going on at the same time? Alicia's attending to that little scroll girl that Wolverine stabbed last issue. Previously, Alicia had acted like she knew this girl, but she tells Skye that she doesn't know her. And then, I like this. The Cree Boy... Their names are very hard to remember. I'll just call him the Cree Boy. The Cree Boy seems sad. He says he's known the girl his entire life, and he can't stand to see her die like this. Alicia says that she'll do everything they can to save her. And then, the boy tries to attack the girl, and he's like, No, it should be me! Me that kills her! Wolverine grabs him and keeps him from killing the girl. You know, the girl that he just tried to kill. Why is Alicia the one car caring for the girl anyway? She's blind! She has no idea what happened. As they pick up the scroll girl and take her inside the Fantastic Four headquarters, Spider-Man's Spider-Sense goes off and he says there's danger all around. And he sees Skye and he's like, Who are you? 
Sky says that she's from the planet Spire. S-P-Y-R-E. Oh, what is it with Dan Slott? Spire with a Y. Empire with a Y. He loves to misspell words by replacing the letter I with a Y. I'm surprised after all these years Spider-Man still has an I in his name. Sky tells him that she is Johnny's soulmate. Spider-Man's eyes get really wide and he yells out, His what? This is a very strange overreaction. And then, these people from Vietnam, the Dark Harvest, they all pop up out of nowhere, like ninjas attacking someone in a Frank Miller comic, just hordes of them appearing out from the shadows all at once, and Spider-Man is still flabbergasted over this soulmate thing. We learn the names of a couple of people in the Dark Harvest. There's Bladed Leaf and Sharpest Thorn. Oh, I get it. All plant names. Huh. This reminds me of my favorite rat group from the 1990s, NWA, Narcissus with Attitude. Let me see, there, there was, um, there was Dr. Dragia, Ice, uh, Capressus, Easy Tree, Arabian Primula, okay, that's enough. Aren't you glad it was the N that I changed in NWA? The Dark Harvest seems interested in that young Cree boy. The rest of the superheroes try to fight him off. Sky tries to protect the boy with her wings, which gets all shot up with poison darts. She's like, I didn't know they were a poison. Welcome to Earth, lady. When somebody shoots you with a dart, assume it's poison. Back inside in the medical room, infirmary, or whatever you call it. You know, whatever you call it when you have a medical room in your house. Alicia is working on the scroll girl. Franklin says to Valeria, we should get back out there. Spidey and Wolverine could probably use our help. You know, the sad part is, they probably could. But first, Valeria has an idea that I don't fully understand. She has the holographic image inducer. She wants to use it to make one of, one of the kids look like Alicia? So when the scroll girl wakes up, she doesn't cause problems? If that's the case, why doesn't Alicia just stay there with the kid? I mean, I don't understand whatever this plan is. It's not like Wolverine and Spider-Man need Alicia's help. Of course, Bladed Leaf does have a pretty nice body. I'm sure Alicia would love to get her hands all over him. You know, for artistic reasons. You know, I've tried that as a, like, a pickup line. You know, here, let me put my hands all over your body so I can sculpt you later. It doesn't work. Back outside, the fighting continues, and one of the Dark Harvest grabs the Kree boy. You know, I just noticed, the FF have a big FF symbol hanging over their door. Like, why are they advertising? This must be really galling to their neighbors. They live in a residential neighborhood. Can you imagine how much your insurance goes up when the FF move in next door? If I had to choose to live next door to someone with a Confederate flag hanging outside their door, or the FF with their FF logo hanging outside their door, it would be a very tough choice. But I'd go with the loser Confederate flag. You know, I say that now, but when Civil War II starts in November, I might change my tune. The Dark Harvest say they want the Kree boy to unburden his great secret. What the hell kind of secret can a boy his age have? Oh, he, he broke the flower pot. He peed in the laundry hamper. He told his parents that Xtube was a website with X-Men videos. It is not. The Kree boy is like, never, I'll tell you nothing. But he doesn't have to tell them anything. They can read his mind, and they learn about the ultimate Kree, Kree weapon, 
the OmniWave Projector. Why does this little kid have the secret of the OmniWave Projector? He was just a slave, forced to fight in an arena battle. Why put that secret in his mind? The guys from Dark Harvest head into the headquarters. They're surprised by how, how much larger it is on the inside. They see a communicator that's open that shows that Spider-Man, Wolverine, Hulk, and Ghost Rider have been summoned. One of them says, that means... And then as if on cue, Ghost Rider and the Hulk show up. Ghost Rider says, there shall be vengeance. Vengeance for what? Reading the boy's mind? Fighting with Spider-Man and Wolverine? They haven't re really done anything that needs vengeance yet. If you were smart, you'd run for your lives, the Hulk says. And this is the real Hulk, you know, the He Hulk. Actually, he's gray again. How did that happen? Did he get bombarded with nostalgia rays? Or eat some, uh, member berries? Remember when the Hulk was gray? Remember when he was smart and a badass? Remember when he was a Las Vegas bouncer? Ghost Rider says, I bring fiery vengeance straight from the depths of hell. He also brings corny dialogue straight from the depths of the 1970s. The Hulk starts doing what he does best, smashing. The leader of the Dark Harvest decides on an appropriate countermeasure to the Hulk's attack. Run! Wolverine tries to chase after them, but that lady, that thorn lady, hits Wolverine with a ton of poison darts. So the Dark Harvest escapes, and Wolverine turns to the Hulk and Ghost Rider and asks them why they're just standing there. And we learn why the two of them seem like they're frozen in time, because they're only holograms created by the image inducer. Franklin is the Hulk and Valeria is Ghost Rider. I'm not sure how Franklin smashed some dude through the wall. He says it's a cosmic punch? Is that a thing? Ah, I can't keep track of his powers. So later, everyone in the infirmary, Sky and the Scroll Girl are recovering. Franklin is asking Wolverine why he didn't bring more X-Men. He says that the Kotati control plants and the X-Men's portal system is plant-based. Oh, okay, of course. Wolverine says that Franklin is an Omega-level mutant and it's time to man up. Isn't Omega the last letter in the Greek alphabet? Shouldn't Alpha-level mutant be the highest level? Franklin punches Wolverine and he's like, heh, better. Valeria says there's a call coming in from her dad. So they explain to Reed what happened and he tells them what's going on. And Reed calls the Dark Harvest powerful allies of the Kotati. But when you do a harvest, aren't you cutting plants down? That doesn't sound like allies to me. The kids ask why Hulk and Ghost Rider didn't show up. Reed says they only needed two replacement FF members. And these drawers open up with the FF costumes for the replacement Fantastic Four. One for Wolverine, one for Spider-Man, and for Valeria, and for Franklin. I'm not sure how this is a surprise. They were all wearing these uniforms on the cover of the last issue. So the four of them change outfits. They say they're going to go find out what the Dark Harvest wanted with a Cree boy, Joe Vin. And that is the end of another issue of the Fantastic Four. And I'm not excited by the FF issues at all. I don't really like any of these characters. Wolverine, overexposed to the point where I don't care anymore. Spider-Man, post one more day, I lost all interest. Franklin and Valeria, annoying kids, both of them too smart and too powerful. Dark Harvest, two issues in, we still have no idea what their motivation is. 
I thought they were going to fight the Kotati, hence their name, Dark Harvest. Why would they help them? On a scale of 1 to 4, I give this issue another uh, 2. I wish these comics were better. Or worse. These average, meh issues are not fun to talk about. So speaking of fun to talk about... Welcome to Fantastic Forecast, episode 657, part 6. Today, supervillain team-up, cover dated August 1975. Slayers from the Sea, by writer Tony Isabella and artist George Tuska and Bill Everett. You know, that's interesting. I didn't know that Bill Everett was involved in this book. He's the creator of Submariner. Seems like he's being relegated to being the inker. And this issue doesn't waste no time. It gets right to it starting at the towers of Castle Latveria, where Namer, the Submariner, and Doctor Doom are having a confrontation. Even though I wouldn't call Subby a supervillain, the title of this comic is misleading. Apparently this issue takes place after they defeated an army of androids in a book called Giant-Sized Supervillains Number 1, which I do not have. Namer says he has much to consider before cementing an alliance with Doctor Doom. Huh, I wonder why. They've done such good work together in the past. You know, there was a time they stole the Baxter building, but Namer ended up betraying Dr. Doom. Maybe Doom has much to consider before having an alliance with Namer. Doom says, My armor alone contains greater weaponry than the arsenals of whole nations, and my scientific genius is unsurpassed. Boy, he's laying it on thick. There's a lot of Americans with arsenals in their basements larger than whole nations. That really doesn't mean much. And his genius has been surpassed many times over the pages of the Fantastic Four by Reed Richards. Of course, fascists aren't well known for their honesty. So in Giant Size Supervillains 1 and 2, things didn't go very well, and Namer suggests he made a bad choice of ally in Doctor Doom. Really, Namer, you think? Doctor Doom doesn't like the idea that he was chosen. So over Namer's choice of words, Doctor Doom has a little snit fit. Fascists aren't well known for their short. Fascists are well known for their short tempers. Namer flies off and Doom heads inside to a room. The narration says its existence is known to one man. There's a lot of TVs. It's his man cave. He starts watching old footage of his encounters with the Fantastic Four, which he refers to as stalemates. Now on the next page. He recalls all the times he's fought other heroes, like Thor, Spider-Man, Quicksilver, Daredevil, and the Hulk. And he uses the word defeat, which I think is it's kind of more in character for him to call those stalemates too. Especially with Daredevil. He was defeated by Daredevil? Doom thinks to himself that he could easily destroy the world alone, but he needs help to rule it. There's a rare moment of candor from Doctor Doom. Usually fascists like to think they don't need help, and say things like, I alone can fix it. Doom ends up smashing his equipment, saying he's going to put his ego aside and ask for help. He sends what he calls his underwater spy to follow the Submariner. His underwater spy is a rocket shaped like a fish. We see Submariner on Hydra Base, a man-made island that can move around like a boat. This is future home of the Avengers, by the way, which is probably my favorite Avengers headquarters. The small private island is the perfect location for a secret headquarters. Not a friggin' brownstone in a highly populated neighborhood in Manhattan. Suddenly, Namor walks through a booby trap, which he sets off, and it shocks the shit out of him. 
He has to fight through the agony and pain to destroy the weapon that is shocking him. Very similar to how I've had to fight through the agony and pain to discuss Empire. And then Namor gets grabbed by some guy covered in green scales. He's got a mustache and a page boy haircut. Oh, and he's wearing a pink mini dress. The design of this character is a complete disaster. This totally should be my next Halloween outfit. People would be like, oh, you're the green guy from Supervillain Team Up number one. Yeah, exactly. Good call. At first, Namor's ready to kick this guy's ass, but then he recognizes him as a man named Dr. Joe Jennings. He doesn't look like a doctor, Dr. Joe Jennings. So Dr. Jennings mentions that Hydra Base is in danger, and we see that it's being attacked by a gang of Atlantean thugs. The lead Atlantean guy is wearing this harness thing, and we can see that he has a hairy chest. I have never seen an, Atl an Atlantean guy drawn with a hairy chest before, but you know, it's the 1970s. Even I had a hairy chest back then, and I was born in the 70s. I came out of my mama with a hairy chest and gold chains. Neymar recognizes these thugs as lackeys of Atuma. Needless to say, over the next few pages, Neymar beats the shit out of them. So Dr. Jennings fills Neymar in on what happened. He and some other doctors, all green-skinned fish people, who are these people? It's not explained. They were doing some research on the island when they were all knocked out by ionic rays, except Dr. Jennings, who was wearing a protective hazmat suit at the time. He ran outside and found the Atlantean thugs attacking the island. In the present, Nimmer says he don't need no help dealing with Atlantean thugs. And then Tiger Shark, the guy in orange and purple, sharp jagged teeth and a big purple fin on his head, he looks pretty stupid. He shows up and punches Namor in the back. I think he was Namor's primary bad guy back in the days of his ongoing series in the late 60s and early 70s. Namor and Dr. Jennings find themselves surrounded by Tiger Shark, Atuma, and this guy named Dr. Dorcas. Which, I don't know if Dr. Dorcas sounded cool in 1975, but in the year 2020, it does not. Atuma has his own supervillain team up. He says that together, the three of them shall rule the world. Do the supervillains in the Marvel Universe forget that there are like hundreds of other superheroes to deal with? Like even if you defeat your primary bad guy, you're still gonna have to deal with the Fantastic Four and Thor, the Avengers, the X-Men, Spider-Man, Moon Knight. Don't forget Moon Knight. Does Atuma, Tiger Shark, and Dr. Dorkass think they can really defeat everybody? Submariner, in a rage, picks up all three of them he flies to a great height and drops them. So the next few pages, Namor is kicking their asses all over the island. But the issue ends with Dr. Dorcas shooting Namor with an electrical gun and knocking him out. Why didn't he just use that gun in the first place? Anyway, that's the end of issue one. Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast, episode 657, part seven. Today, Supervillain Team-Up number two, cover dated October 1975. In the Midst of Life by Tony Isabella and Sal Basima. Okay, well, this episode's running a little long. <laughs> Alert the affiliates. So this issue begins right after the Submariner has been defeated by the sinister supervillainy of Atuma and the Lord of the Murky Depths, Tiger Shark, 
and the supervillain with a dork-ass name, Dr. Dorcas. We see both Tiger Shark and Atuma carrying Namor's unconscious body. Wait, it takes two of them to carry one guy? Tiger Shark and Atuma are a couple of wimps. Plus, they're underwater. How heavy can he be? You just drag him along. You don't need two people for that job. Also, Namor is in a very odd position with his legs spread. It looks like Dr. Dorcas is an obstetrician about to deliver Namor's baby. Then we get a recap of events from last issue. Submariner's argument with Dr. Doom and the Namor getting beat up by the three villains on Hydra Base. Really, that was like two scenes in the entire issue, last issue. Next, Dr. Joe Jennings is back. He sneaks up behind one of Atuma's men and punches him in the back of the head. There's a great panel of the Atlantean baddie and his eyes getting wide and going irk as he gets hit. It looks like something from Not Brand X. Dr. Jennings runs off and a little bit later, the Atlantean gets up and he says, Great Neptune, the human has escaped. I guess Jennings is a, is a human? With a mutation or something? The Atlantean says, I must inform Atuma and pray that he does not take umbrage at his lowly jester for being such a sorry guard. <laughs> I like this guy. So he gets up to the beach where Atuma and Dorcas are dragging Namor to show them that the human has escaped. And they don't care that much, really. I mean, why would they? Tiger Shark notices a fish floating on the water, and it's a metal fish. It's that robot fish missile thing that, with a camera that Dr. Doom fought, fired to follow Namor last issue. Someone says it's not important, but Tiger Shark crushes it. We see Dr. Doom watching on TV when he loses his signal. Is this really the most interesting thing that Dr. Doom could be watching right now? Well, I guess in 1975. TV was pretty shitty. It sure beats the Merv Griffin show. Dr. Doom gets up, leaves the room, and heads into another room. He activates a switch. A missile comes up out of the floor. A door opens. Doom gets inside and blasts off. You know, this missile has no windows at all. It seems to be a pretty unpleasant form of transportation. Dr. Doom lands on Hydra Base, and he hits that same booby trap from earlier, and he gets a big electric shock. But Dr. Doom has his armor so it's not a problem. Then he comes across two weird Atlantean ships. I don't know what to call them. They're driven by Atlanteans, but the ships have these tentacles. Doom whips out this uh, thing that mind controls the two Atlantean drivers and causes them to wreck into each other? Wait a minute, Doom has a mind control device? Why did he save it for this occasion? Maybe he saved that one for the Fantastic Four. In the bushes, some lady, also with fishy green skin, like Dr. Jennings, she's spying on Dr. Doom, and she's like, as if we don't have enough problems already. She turns around, and he's standing there, like, right behind her, and he's like, yo, what's up? She was tricked. She was looking at a hologram on the beach while he walked up behind her. They used to use that same trick on Allie McBeal all the time. He wants to know what she's doing, and she says that she's not telling him anything except her name, rank, and serial number. He already knows what her name is. Betty Dean Prentice. She's British, once had a fling with Namor back in the 1940s. She's confused because it ain't like he's following her on Facebook. How does he know all this stuff? He convinces her that he and Namor are old friends. Oh yeah, they've had some really fun times together. She'll t she tells him about Atuma, Dr. Dorkass, and uh, Tiger Shark. 
and how Namer is being held captive. She says, it's up to us to liberate my old foot warmer. Is that what they called ex-boyfriends in the 1940s or the 1970s? Old foot warmers? Or does Namer have some kind of foot fetish? You know, I can picture that. So Doom agrees to help her, and they head over to a building where they think Namer is being held. Doom whips out this sonic drilling device. He uses it to make a big hole in the ground, and Doom and Betty travel underground, and Doom creates a tunnel with his device. I guess the dirt is just magically disappearing as they go. They get to a wall, and Doom's device blasts a hole in the wall, and guess where they end up? Inside the building, inside the exact room where Namer is being held. The odds of that? How did Doom know which room to go to? Atuma, Dr. Dorcas, and Tiger Shark are there waiting. The three of them said that they thought about making a partnership with Dr. Doom, but then Tiger Shark says, We don't trust you, Doomsy. That means we gotta waste ya. Funny seeing a Z-lister superhero say that to an A-list baddie. Dr. Dorcas adds that they're gonna have to kill Betty, too. She says, Namer and I spent a whole decade being, being threatened by the likes of you, and we're still around. He slaps her, saying, Insolent old woman? Always a bit of a mouthful when you're slapping an old lady. This pisses Submariner off, and he starts struggling against his chains. They're not paying much attention to Dr. Doom at all at this point. And he goes ahead and he zaps Atuma and Tiger Shark with one of his weapons. Dr. Dorcas is about to shoot Namer with a ray gun, but Betty screams, no! And she runs in front of it, and he zaps the shit out of her. This really pisses Namer off, and he finally breaks out of his chains. You know, Namer, you should have done that a few minutes ago, and Betty would still be alive. The issue ends on a very dark note, with Namer cradling Betty's dead body. How many girlfriends and wives has Namer had that were killed? He and Daredevil could be in a competition for that. And that is the end of supervillain team-up number one, and number two... It's amazing how little happened in these two issues, by the way. It's almost like a modern comic book. Still, I enjoy these two issues more than I enjoy the Empire issues on this show. So that's it. All the comics I'm discussing here in this episode. In the next episode, Fantastic Four 23, Empire number 6, and uh, I guess that's it. Oh, plus, whatever comes up on the wheel. And it's time to spin the wheel, the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. So here's what we have on the wheel this time. Number one, issues one and two of Fantastic Four, World's Greatest Comics Magazine, which was a 12-issue miniseries from uh, 2001. Number two, Fantastic Four Secret Invasion, issues one, two, and three, a three-issue miniseries that ties into the big Secret Invasion crossover. Number three, a new addition to the wheel, why it's issues three and four of Supervillain Team Up. Number four, Challengers of the Fantastic, a Marvel DC amalgam book from 1997 that combines the Fantastic Four with Challengers of the Unknown. Number five, from 1999, another DC Marvel special, Fantastic Four Superman. Number six, Fantastic Four X-Men issues one and two, the four-issue miniseries from 1987. Number seven, the top ten hottest Fantastic Four villains I'll be ranking what I think are the 10 most attractive Fantastic Four villains of all time. Number 8. Something I call Issue 44. I'll be doing a random 44th issue of any comic book in my collection. Number 9. 
episode one of the Fantastic Four radio show from the early 1970s featuring the voices of Stan Lee and Bill Murray. Number 10, Marvel 2-in-1 random issue. If I land on this, I'll be I'll go to the random number generator and pick a number between 1 and 100 and I'll, whatever number it shows up is the issue of Marvel 2-in-1 that I'll do. Number 11, Fantastic Four random issue. If I land on this, I'll stick 635 numbers into a random number generator and do whatever comes up. Number 12. For this, it's the last Fantastic Four story from 2007 by Stan Lee and John Romita Jr. If I land on this, it will be the last Fantastic Four story I ever do on this podcast, meaning that this podcast will come to an end. Very high stakes if we land on this one. The future of the podcast is on the line, as always. So now it's time to spin the fantastic wheel of doom. So here we go. We're spinning the wheel. Spinning. Slowing down. We've got FF Radio, Last Fantastic Four Story, Fantastic Four X-Men. And it's top ten hottest. So that's it. Only two comics in the next episode. Fantastic Four 23 and Empire number 6. And I think both are out already, so I'll probably only be a, a week or two before the next episode. Plus, I'm going to go through my list of top 10 hottest FF supervillains, which, <clears throat> now that I think about it, I regret putting that on the wheel. If you have any questions about Dr. Joe Jennings, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download episodes of iTunes and find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. I'll take your shots. Keep pretending that I forgot. I keep falling into space I've never known. Long nights, words slip. Your head through my fingertips. In your orbit and I can't seem to let it go. And all my premonitions are so different than before But if you're my addiction, I'm not sober